0: Heavenly Father, we have gathered here this evening to bring honor and glory to your only begotten Son who became flesh and dwelt among us. We look upon the humble way in which he came and ask that you would give us a spirit of humility as we reflect on our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for sending Jesus into this broken and corrupted world as one of us to dwell with us and to suffer and die in our place. That you so loved the cosmos that you gave your only son to die for us, that all the believing would receive the promise of eternal life as your blessed heirs. Thank you God for the testimony of the angels shepherds, the wise men and those who recorded these events in scripture for us to embrace forevermore. We humbly now submit our hearts, our minds, and our attention to you, our good God, as we open your holy scriptures this evening to learn of you and from you and to know you more deeply through what you have given us to know you by. We give you this time. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now you may have uh, noticed our candles uh, if you've been here with us. I mentioned this past Sunday that uh, we have three purple and one pink candle, and those are for the four weeks of Advent, and then the white candle is for tonight, for Christmas Eve. The wreath below is a continuous circle that represents eternal life, the first candle is lit on the first Sunday of Advent, and it symbolizes hope. Some, some call that the prophecy candle. Uh, to remember the prophets who foretold about the birth of Christ and represent the expectation and uh, anticipation rather of the coming Messiah. Remember, uh, again, that that first week of Advent looks ahead to the second coming. The second candle represents faith. It's called the Bethlehem candle as a reminder of of Joseph and Mary's journey. And then the third candle is pink like a rose because it symbolizes joy. It can be called the shepherd's candle. Uh, and that third Sunday of Advent is often called at Sunday, and it's meant to remind us of the joy that the world experiences because of the birth of Jesus. The fourth week we light the final purple candle, which represents peace. It's called the angel's candle because it was the angels who proclaimed peace on earth goodwill toward men. And then, tonight, Christmas Eve, we light the white candle. It's called the Christ candle. It represents Christ. And that color white signifies purity, because Christ is our pure and sinless Savior. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John. And we're going to jump around a little bit uh, tonight, but you're going to want to keep your finger in John chapter 1. So turn to John. Of the, you know, of the billions of people inhabiting this great planet, there is not one biography that's exactly the same as another. Each of us has a unique story, story with, you know, depending on our age, a number of life transforming events. For me it's, you know, of car wrecks, being bullied in elementary school, having medical issues, struggling with academics. I had at one point an in-flight fire while piloting an airplane in the middle of the night. Most recently I had an involuntary weight loss program that had me sick in bed with COVID and evidently near death. Uh, But no event in my life was more monumental than clearly hearing the voice of God at the Sunday night church service in Riverside. It had nothing to do with what the pastor was saying. In fact, I, I don't even remember a word he said. But as my eyes sat fixed upon that pastor, a voice spoke to me. I was about 21 years old. And I heard in my heart somehow, and I know the words, that's what I want you doing with your life well, there's more context to be had there, and there there were events that led up to that rich journey, and, uh, though you know, something, you know, a, a rich journey that has flowed from it. But that moment transformed my life more than any other. That's kind of what the prologue to John's gospel is in John 1, 1 through 18. This speaks of the beginning of that monumental event in biblical history among all, all the radical events that led to it, and all the radical events that have flowed from it in the New Testament and in Christian history as we know it. Matthew and John both have detailed accounts of the Nativity. John just gives us historically vague but eternally profound remark in verse 14, just one verse about the birth of of Christ. And it actually really covers all 33 roughly years of his earthly life. We call that the incarnation. As, as we have been studying Luke's nativity, we've we've been seeing the humanity of Jesus, but we also must not forget the divinity of Jesus, that he is eternal God. The prologue to John's gospel identifies that baby in the manger. John gives us the clearest picture of who the Son of God is in this context. So before we transport ourselves into the manger scene, let us open John's gospel to learn the identity of that babe born in the manger, starting in verse 1. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You know, we looked at this on Sunday. John puts the Son of God in eternity past. Why is the Son of God called the Word, or Logos? There was, in the Greco-Roman culture at that time, kind of this abstract philosophical idea about the logos. It was, it was kind of like Paul was, like that time that Paul was standing at the Areopagus in the book of Acts. Acts, verse, Acts chapter 17, he, Paul notices this, and, and he says verse 22, Acts 17, 22, men of Athlan, Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, we'll stop there a second. There's something very profound that they don't know the source of, and they know that they don't know the source of it. So Paul continues in verse 23, 23 here. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to man, or rather gives all, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul's Borrowing this philosophical idea from the mythology that the people believed, and using their own beliefs to point to the one true God. John seems to be doing something very similar here. He takes this idea, the Logos, which is really wisdom that was too big for people to understand, and he personifies it with the Son of God where people could see that there is wisdom and knowledge beyond our capacity to know, John recognized that the source of all wisdom is the living Word, the Son of God. In fact, according to the Puritan Matthew Henry, the Jews were already being taught the Word of God, quote, the Word of God was the same with God. So John's not saying anything new here to the Jews, not not yet at least. The Word is Creator God. Verse 3 of John 1. John 1, 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In fact, how did God create? He spoke creation into existence. The spoken Word. In Genesis 1, we see God speaking creation into existence, but then we get to John 1, 14, and we're going to see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So w- now we know this is speaking of Jesus. Now they didn't, but we do uh, we 'll get there. This is what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians Colossians one verse fifteen, Colossians one fifteen He is the in- image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John's kind of tricky here, because nobody quite knew they were talking about Jesus of Nazareth at, at this point. So he starts with all the stuff that nobody's going to argue with. Verse 4 of John 1. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word of God is the light that illuminates what we, in our sinful nature, often refuse to recognize you know, we tend to pretend that our sins are not willful disobedience, right? Like we call them mistakes, or anybody ever called them an oopsie-daisy, right? Or, and we excuse them, right? Well, it's not really sin, it's more like an infraction. Well, you know, nobody's perfect, right? But, but the light of Jesus exposes us, because when we do that, we are actually denying the character of God who knows our hearts. And the light Illuminates the character and the goodness of God. That's in contrast to us. When we live in darkness, it's kind of easy to feel like we're winning God's favor, right? Like we can we can deceive ourselves. Right? I go to church every week. I homeschool my kids to keep them from the, the public school indoctrination. Right? I give at least 10% of my income to the church. Ooh, I go to mission trips right? And then we get into the things that we don't do. The things that, the Bible doesn't say we can't do it, but somehow we think that by not doing them we're, we're better Christians, we're more spiritual, we're more holy. Like, oh, I don't drink any alcohol or smoke cigars and I don't listen to secular music at all. Ugh, no. Uh, I would never walk into a casino, right? It, it's kind of like this guy that Jesus talked about. He, had, he told a story in, Ma- in Luke 18. Remember Luke 18, uh, verse 10? This is, this is a story Jesus tells. He says, two men went up to the, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, it's funny how we can always find somebody to compare ourselves to, to make ourselves look more holy. Like we look, make ourselves look like better Christians, right? So we can feel better about our own spirituality. But when we're exposed by the light, we suddenly realize that we aren't so holy after all, are we? In fact, Paul expresses this very clearly in Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know, if our actions could make us holy, then Jesus died in vain. We cannot perfectly please God. And when we compare ourselves to our neighbor, we're choosing to walk in darkness. But that darkness cannot overcome the light. Romans 90, verse 8, it says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. So up to this point, we see that Jesus is the source of all wisdom, and all knowledge, and all power. Remember, he spoke creation into existence, and he illuminates our sin and his holiness. So with that in mind, we'll move into the next section. Just like Matthew and Luke, the Apostle John also speaks of John the Baptist in his nativity story. John 1, 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It's interesting that John came to illuminate the light. John bore witness about the light just like the moon bears witness about the sun. Even when we can't see the sun, the moon can prove the sun's existence. The moon does not provide any light of its own, but reflects the light of the sun. John testifies or proclaims the true light, just like we saw him doing when he leapt in his mother's womb as Mary showed up pregnant with Jesus. John continues... Humanity failed to recognize him. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 1. He says, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. When it says that they suppress the truth, that means that it is a willful, continual, active striving against. So we see that this wasn't because God didn't make himself obvious enough. It was that our sin, in our sin, we're so accustomed to denying the truth about God that we often don't even realize that we're doing it, even though it is still active and willful rejection. That's pretty bad news for us. What a great Christmas Eve message, huh? (laughs) But then it said his own people rejected him. More good news, right? And remember that Israel is God's chosen nation. Jesus was born as a Jew. He spends his earthly life among Jews. So even the people that he gave special earthly privilege to rejected him. There are people who did believe, and there are people who do believe. And here we see that Jesus takes salvation out of the context of Israel. He gave the right to those who believed whether or not they were Jewish. That's a right to become children of God. And this was not a birthright based on bloodline or human willingness, but of God's own doing. There's the hope. The hope does not reside in us. It resides in Christ. Verse 13 is so important because it demonstrates to us that even though we have willingly and actively rejected God, continually he can and does overcome that. It says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Jews would, at this point in the narrative, have been pretty uncomfortable, I think. They were the chosen ones after all, right? They, They were the children of Abraham. What do you mean it's not by bloodline? But the message now is that nobody becomes a child of God by natural birth, but by a change of nature. And nobody can change your nature except Pfizer or Moderna. I mean God. Nobody can change... Sorry, that was bad. I wrote it in my notes wrong. Nobody can change your nature except God. That was... I don't care who you are. That's funny. <laughs> Being born into God's family is not something that is passed on genetically, nor does it have anything to do with desire. It's the, work, it's the word of God who... Who now, as it says in verse 14, this is what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is probably the most important verse in the New Testament to us right now. The Word, who we've already established as light and and life-giving, almighty creator God humbles himself to become as one of his created beings. Uh, A strict, emotionless, academic reading of this text just simply won't do. This is a king stepping off of his throne to dwell among his subjects. If we read this in the context of the rest of John's gospel, we're unable to deny the motive for doing this, which is his love for us. John Calvin said he intended to show what a mean, uh, he intended to show to what a mean and despicable condition the Son of God, on our account, descended from the height of his heavenly glory. Why would he do that on our account? It's his love. Because we, as image bearers of God, that have corrupted that very image by embracing all sorts of sin and violence and only Jesus can lift us out of our fallen condition. So this was not a a small inconvenience for for God here. This This is God of all creation, King of kings, Lord of lords, becoming flesh to dwell among us by being born outdoors and laid in an animal's food dish. Coming in humility to humbly take our shame upon himself. The manger manger scene is is a picture of that. Our nativities are not just, just a warm, cozy reminder of the reason for the season. They should remind us of the shame that Christ bore on our behalf. You know, during that time, that, that philosophical idea of the word was, was connected to the divine. People would, people would have assumed some kind of deity just by hearing the term. So God became flesh would have been the understanding in virtually every culture of that time period. Let's close out our section in John here, starting in verse 15. John 1:15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Verse 18 reveals that the Father is God that the Son is God. Later in the book of John, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit is God. And, and you know, that's led to some confusion about the divine nature of Yahweh. So we're going to keep it simple. I think we have a graphic up here. Okay. It really, we can keep it that simple. If We worship one God. We know that we worship one God. The Father is God, though. The Son is God, we know that. And we know that the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And so the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dwell together in perfect unity as one God. In fact, you would have to be to be the God of Israel, because this is what it says in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we actually have the same teaching in the New Testament, actually coming from Jesus himself. In fact, it's, it's so important that Jesus begins the most important principle of the Christian faith this way, right here in Mark 12. Look at this, Mark 12, 28 through 31. Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And because the worm, or because the worm, because the Word, that was bad, <laughs> because the Word became flesh, we have grace upon grace. And That grace is demonstrated profoundly in the way that Jesus was born of a virgin and a manger. Look what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Matthew chapter 1, 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to her son, and he called his name Jesus. See, Emmanuel is this, this title. It can be used as a name, kind of like some people say Pastor Jeff. Some people say Pastor. Some people just say Jeff. Whatever, right? But Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's the proper name that, that Joseph gives. So the message here is that our Savior Jesus is everlasting God And is with us. In fact, continues to be with us. Look at the final proclamation of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And listen, and behold, I am with you Always, God with us, to the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us to the end of the age. See, the birth of Jesus is not just the story that pops up. It's, it's not the, the end of the story. And we're actually going to continue the story of his birth and his life and his death as we uh, continue Sunday in our series in Luke and I hope you'll continue to join us each week as we seek to honor our Savior by digging into the Bible which He has given us to know Him by. And I want to encourage you tonight. Jesus came. He came for us to take upon, we, we saw our sin, our depravity, our brokenness, our willful disobedience, and Jesus came to take that. Will you put your faith in Jesus? Until Sunday, my family and I wish you the very warmest, joyous, and supernaturally merry Christmas as we all seek to honor the birth of our gracious Lord. Let us pray. Our holy God, we bow our heads in humble adoration of our Lord Jesus who came as a Poor and marginalized baby in such a messy and humiliating circumstance. On our behalf, we we thank you for the love that came down to be poured out upon us lowly and undeserving sinners. God, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us because we have not loved you with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strength and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Instead, we have in our pride condemned our fellow image bearers and exalted ourselves. Let us now exalt that baby in a manger, our Lord Jesus, and humble ourselves to recognize our desperate need for Him. Let us express our love and adoration for Jesus by loving and adoring every image bearer of God that we come across in this world. And so, God, we offer ourselves over to you as we celebrate the birth of Jesus among family and friends. May we see that as our mission field, and remember, Emmanuel, God with us until the end of the age. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.